Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. All the way back in January of 2016. So that means I had Trammel still with me as the A-team. And Eski, my young pup, who's now nine, was two years old. Uh, I, I was fortunate back in January 2016 to get invited on a Texas quail hunting trip hosted by, at the time, uh, Ted Gartner from Garmin. Um, so I jumped at that opportunity and I spent 17 hours in my truck with my pups driving from Minnesota to West Texas so I could chase quail behind my own bird dogs. And that trip ended up being really a collection of who's who of bird hunting writers for the era. Tom Davis, Ron Spalmer, Bob West, they were all there. But the guy I connected to most, I'd never met before. Uh, Co-hosting that trip with Ted Gartner was today's featured guest. Uh, Steve Snell, who co-owns Gundog Supply with his brother Rob. Steve is a passionate bird dog man and likely among the top five people in the country racking up truck miles on his vehicle searching for covey flushes as he crisscrosses the country from his home in Mississippi to his quail hunting property in West Texas and to all sorts of public land destinations from Montana and beyond. Today, I'm really excited to catch up with uh, a guy I haven't talked to since Pheasant Fest last year and I haven't hunted with since 2016. But we're going to talk bird dogs, we're going to talk about quail, and we're going to talk about the big country of West Texas, because he's just back from there where he was chasing quail, Steve Snell. Thanks very much for making time, Steve. Thanks, Bob. I sure appreciate it. Glad to be uh, here. I, yeah! I, yeah, I was going back and, and thinking about that, that, that trip. That was, a, that was an amazing, not only was it an amazing collection of people, but it was an amazing time. Uh, most birds I've ever seen was in that 2015-16, 2016, you know, uh, those two seasons were the best that we ever saw. Yeah, I remember when we arrived, I think I arrived a day earlier than the rest of the crew because I was driving. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and with my own dogs. And I think, I believe, so me, you, and Ted, we yes. we ended up at, at a karaoke bar one night. Oh, oh <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> and then... And then we hunted, the three of us, we had a full day of hunting. Um, and I remember, I think, I don't think you or I sang, but I remember Ted no, sang. Yeah, Ted sang, <laughs> yes. yes. And then we, we enjoyed hunting the next day. I think you and I walked more miles because Ted might have been a little bit. No, <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but, uh, but you're I, right. The, those were, those days... Like you, you called it, you know, like we're never, well, maybe not never, but I, you never yeah. experienced coveys in that quantity 
I mean, that was a high point, right? Yeah, you know, I've always heard of, before I started hunting in Texas, I had always heard the stories, you know, of 50 Covey days. And, mm-hmm. uh, and when I first started hunting in Texas, we didn't experience that. Um, and it, it fluctuated a lot. And so it was one of those things that I kind of had to come to terms with and learn. It's, it's, it's a different kind of bird hunting than I grew up with. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the number of birds you, 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 you come across, a lot of it's going to depend on how many miles you walk or, or how you hunt. And, and that's another mm-hmm. thing, too. When somebody says they quail hunt in Texas, you've kind of got to ask some questions and go, okay, well, how are you doing it? Because there's a lot of different ways that people do it in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, or, yeah, 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 I've hunted on, uh, you know, I primarily hunt off foot and that's what I prefer. Mm-hmm. I have done, but yeah. I have hunted off a of horseback out there. I've hunted out of buggies. I've hunted out of Jeeps. I've hunted out of trucks. Um, you know, and, and for clarity, when we hunted together, yeah. it was all on foot. Yes. We yes. just and that's, let the dogs go yeah, and roll. Yeah. You know, I, that, that's how I prefer to do it. Um, that's how I grew up hunting. And I, for a long time, I thought I was going to do a horseback, you know, sort of thing, but I figured out pretty fast that I was not a horseman. And mm. so uh, I abandoned that rather, well, not as quickly maybe as I should have, but, uh, um, so there's a lot of different ways to do it, and and mm. so, but I, I like to walk. I, I just, yeah. you know, and I've yet to find another way, and I'm going to do it that way as long as I can. Um, it, that's that's kind of my take. My recollection, and you know, things get rosier with time. Yes, <laughs> at least for me. Um, I, my, I recall like 60 Covey um, flushes. Am I? I don't think we had that, high- that. So, so I have two records, um, and I'm trying to remember. I'd have to go back and look exactly if it was 14, 15, and 15, 16, or if it was 15, 16, 16, 17. I, I, I don't remember exactly. But my first record, um, like in 2008, we had an insane blue quail year, and mm-hmm. I, you know, we moved like 30 cubbies, 32 yeah. cubbies, something like that, on, on foot one day. And that was hands down. I tore a quad muscle that day. We were we were going so hard. Um, in the the first year of the, the that major boom, um, we hunted and we moved forty two coveys on mm. foot. Um, and the next year, on a different piece of ground, but in the same general vicinity, we moved fifty two. You know, mm. and and now that was a, that was a long day, and it was kind of crazy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people will go, well, how is that possible? Because you start doing the math and you start going, mm-hmm. well, you know. But uh, there, was a, there was one of those years um, I came up across a hill and I looked down in this valley and I had, I had three dogs on the ground. I was by myself and all three dogs are locked up. Mm. And the assumption for me was that the lead dog was on a covey and the other two dogs were backing. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was just, it was nice and open so they could all see each other. So that was the logical thing. So I'm coming in, these are younger dogs and I'm, I'm working them. And so I come in behind the first, the, the furthest back dog just to, you know, praise him up just a little bit and move to the next dog. And, uh, I slide by him and I flush a cubby. Mm-hmm. Well, so he had his own cubby. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved to the next dog he has a cubby <laughs> and then I moved to the lead dog and he has a cubby. So you know, it was, it's that kind of thing. You know, we would have situations where, where um, you'd have a dog on point and the cubby would get up and the cubby would land and flush another cubby. Mm. Um, you know, so it was just that kind of thing. And so, so 
uh, I had somebody ask me earlier this year, I was writing an article about something, and one of the comments, I guess on Facebook, was, you know, it was, it was sort of a clarification on the difference between, um, we talk about moving cubbies, you mm-hmm. know, how many cubbies did you move? Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's a, um, I've, been a, I've been accused of being a member of the Chamber of Commerce for West Texas, because, you know, for me, you know, if I, if I experience them in any sort of way, that counts, you know, so okay. if it's road covey, if I, if I see them flush in the distance, you know, or if, or if we have dog work on them, you know, I count that mm-hmm. as a covey fine. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and somebody was asking me about that because pheasant hunters don't look at it that way. You know, it's not quite the same thing, I don't think. Um, and so, you know, so for me, you know, how many coveys I experience in a day, just if I see a covey, that gets, that gets counted because that, I know they're there. And mm-hmm. so, you know, they're there for another time or they're there for breeding stock or, you know. So, and, yeah, you we'll, know, where we'll put, yeah. we'll put quail kind of in the middle because you're right, pheasant hunters would only count the birds that are. Yeah, they want right? shooting but, opportunities, I guess. But you. rough grouse hunters just. Oh, yeah, they're worse. They hear them, oh, they're you know? worse than me. They're like, how many did you <laughs> right. hear? Yes. Right. Yes. So yeah. you're not, you're not no. extreme by any yeah, that's stretch. A, that's a good point. I, I have, uh, I have not experienced that yet. But, uh, but I talked to guys, and they're like, "Yeah, I heard three. You know, I heard we had we had twenty flushes. I heard seventeen of them." Yeah. And I'm just like, "Oh, okay, okay, yeah." So uh, yeah, you know, Texas is an interesting. Um, so it's it's it was my first experience in hunting in a dry climate. Um, mm. So I grew up in Mississippi, and we quail hunted here um, back in the. I started in the early '80s. And uh, we hunted primarily here until like the early 90s. Um, and, you know, we get an average rainfall year for us is 52 to 55 inches. Um, you know, and the biggest problem in our part of the world is it gets too thick for quail mm-hmm. very quickly. You know, if you're not mm-hmm. if you're not churning the ground here, if you're not disking or burning or, you know, bulldozers or, you know, just something, you know, it turns back into so thick you can't walk through it um, and so thick that birds can't live in it. Where out west, you know, it's a whole different game. It's all rainfall based. Um, yeah. One of one of the leases that I'm I'm on right now, their average rainfall is about 12 inches a year. Mm. You know, and that's average rainfall over a long period of time, which means that it's not uncommon to get no rain. You yeah, know, it's not uncommon to get six inches of rain, and so that that plays a gigantic role on mm-hmm. you know on populations and, and the timing of populations and there, there's a lot of things that go hand in hand with it and it's a it's a tricky thing um it's a tricky thing to understand and to deal with and there's a lot you know um, quail hunting there's a, there's an enormous amount that goes into healthy quail populations and it's, it's complicated and um frustrating so, sometimes as a guy growing up in mississippi yeah how, did you go to Texas before you had a lease there chasing quail? Yeah, we or how started. Did that come uh, to be? So there's there's so so Texas Texas does a lot of different things. Most of the bird hunting in Texas is either in South Texas mm-hmm. or it's in West Texas, and you have to be careful when you talk to anybody about West Texas because it depends on you know. I think of West Texas as anything from maybe two hours west of Dallas, you know, across. Um, Texans will disagree with that that statement. There are, you know, what they call it is is different. Um, when I think of North Texas, I really am thinking about the Panhandle, but that's not true. North Texas is like north of Dallas, in between Oklahoma, mm. and the Panhandle is the Panhandle. Um, 
I primarily hunt what is called the rolling plains and the panhandle. Um, and then I hunt, um, and I, I think it's, I guess it's technically included into it, but I, over the years, went further and further and further west into what is called the Permian Basin, which is kind of mm. in the Midland, Odessa uh, sort of area. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's dependent for me. When my father was alive, we hunted together. We primarily hunted out of, like, Childress in the bottom of the Panhandle. That was his favorite mm. part of the state, and we hunted there. But we did a lot of what are called day leases, um, and you don't see them as much as you used to. Uh, where it was basically you paid a, a you know a, a trespass fee for the day and it was mm-hmm. anywhere from 100 to 250 bucks or you know and you could get three or four days and you'd go and hunt um, and we did that for a while um, I, I didn't care for it from the standpoint that um, unless there were a lot of birds you know it took you two or three days to figure out where everything was and, yeah and learn the land and then you know so I don't remember when we got our first lease, but we got we got our first lease, and it was in that general Childress, you know, vicinity, um, and uh, it was a small lease. It was probably two thousand acres, um, mm. maybe maybe bigger than that. But um, there were only there were only like two or three people that were hunting on it, two or three groups. You know, it was a small you know sort of thing. And I think the best day we ever had on it was about seventeen coveys, which is phenomenal. Mm. You know, um, it is one of those things where. Some of us, myself included, get caught up in the numbers at times. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're like, oh, we only found five coveys today. Okay, well, great. You know, name me, you know, you know, how many places in the world can you go and move five coveys? Right. Um, right. You know, and so, yeah, is five coveys great? No. Can you, can you own a bird dog with five coveys? Shoot, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so it is one of those things where you kind of have to be realistic about it. Um, like I said, I, 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 when I was younger and – you know, those numbers were the things that I was chasing. You know, going for that 50-covey day, that was a big deal. Well, it took me a long time to realize that these guys were on property that were being managed specifically for quail. They served no other purpose whatsoever, and they were strictly for quail, and they were they were managed heavily for that. And, um, uh, you know, and then also they were working out of some sort of vehicle, you know, where mm-hmm. they were, you know, where they were moving. Covering well, ground. Yeah, they're covering a lot of ground. And so, you know, it's one of those things where it, it just depends on how you like to experience it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one covey an hour, you know, and, and most people don't hunt anywhere near as much as they think they're going to, you know, mm-hmm. but a, a full day, you know, if you think about it is, you know, four hours before lunch and four hours after lunch. I mean, that's a full day, mm-hmm. you know? And so if you're finding a covey every hour, you know, that's eight coveys. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, is that, you know, I mean, that, that's just one of those things where it just kind of depends. You know, uh, I'll guarantee you in this part of the world where I grow up, you know, if you could find eight coveys in Mississippi, people lose their minds, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so, I mean, it's just it's one of those things where it just kind of depends on, you know, on what you want. Um, but, but the other side of it, too, and, and I think you're this way, because, you know, one reason why I knew, you know, I mean, I knew who you were before we met. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, you're famous. <laughs> not but, true yeah but it was one of those things where the fact mm. that you loaded up your truck mm-hmm. and brought your dogs because you wanted to hunt behind your dogs mm-hmm. i was like oh yeah yeah i think yeah. that's i think bob and i could get along just great <laughs> you know because that's what i do people are like hey yeah. do you want to come hunt so-and-so and i'm like oh man i just that's a long drive and they're like no just fly over and i'm like no i don't have a plane my dogs don't yeah. fly and uh, you know I, yeah it, and I instantly gravitated, like, you know, we'd break up into groups. And I, I want to go with Steve again. <laughs> the other thing that was cool, I learned a ton. 
because I had never hunted. So I, if I recall correctly, in Texas, they call them blues. Yes. Right? Yes. yes. So I never hunted blues, scalies, cotton tops mm, until yep. I hunted with you. Oh, yeah. And so I learned not only a lot about Bob Whites, not only about West Texas, but I got to experience a brand new bird with you. Well, I was about to say, that and was it, your first, yeah, because I have a picture of you. You, you killed your first with the, blue. My yes. first, yes. first yeah. blue quail. And, and anybody that enjoys that, too, I'm just like, I gravitate toward folks that yeah, appreciate and, that experience. Yeah. And it was like, I could tell, well, at least my perception is that you have a sweet tooth for a oh. blue quail. Like, you love Bob Whites, but when we got into blues, yeah. you were kind of like a giddy, uh, you were like Ralphie on Christmas. You yeah, know? There you like, go. yeah, that's it. And, and, and it felt like that was a pretty good year for blues too. It, it was, was like, yeah, you know, it was. probably. It, my recollection is, you know, maybe twenty percent. Yeah, that's probably a little high. Ten to fifteen percent of the coveys we flushed were maybe yeah. blues. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, I, it was either that or you know, and it's one of those things too where um, I absolutely love blue quail, mm-hmm. and a lot of bird dog guys have a hard time with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you will find, I would say more than not, if, if bird dog guys that hunt blues either love them or they tolerate them because there's mm-hmm. no bobs to hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't see my first, you know, I, I specifically went on a blue, blue covey, I mean, a blue quail hunt. Oh goodness. This is probably 2003, 2004, something mm-hmm. like that. I had seen one covey up in, in the Childress area with my dad, um, we were sitting in the truck having lunch, and we looked up, and, and four birds, very small covey for blues, and I wouldn't I'd be hard-pressed to call that a covey. And they came, walked across the thing, and I watched them, and, and, uh, but, you know, they just weren't very common. Um, they used to be spread throughout the entire Rolling Plains, and their population was much larger, and something happened in the late 80s. Um, we're still not sure, but they had a major die-off. Hmm. And have not returned to that natural area yet. So I'd never seen them, so I went hunting... Um, Oh, goodness. Like I said, probably 2003, 2004, something like that. I went out specifically and hunted uh, in the um, – actually, it was not too far from where you and I hunted. And it was strictly to hunt blues. Um, and they're different. Um, they're bigger coveys. They're, they're slightly larger birds. Um, it, it's hard mm-hmm. to – it's hard – most people can't really differentiate from them, but they're a little bit bigger. And um, – I have one one buddy of mine that I hunt with that says they're smarter than Bob's. Hmm. Um, I don't I don't I don't like that I don't like that description. Um, they're they're tougher than Bob's. Um, they are just real scrappy and um, they are just hardy and they're they're hard to kill. They're hard to hunt. Um, a dog that can handle blues is something magical to watch. Um, they would just as soon run as do anything. So, yeah. so that's so. <clears throat> I want you to explain that a little bit yeah. because you made the comment like, you know, hardcore bird dog guys mm, and yeah. gals don't like blues. So, so explain that, okay, what, why so, that is. So the problem with blues is that they they are not even even Western bobs. You know, they'll run, mm-hmm. but they don't run like blues run. Mm. And and you know. Dogs have to learn how to handle a, a running bird. Well, I'd never seen a running bird. Birds in Mississippi did not move. You know, mm. if dog goes on point. You know that that bird's going to be depending on how scent conditions are. He's going to be somewhere within, you know, ten yards of that dog. Mm. Sometimes closer, sometimes a little bit further, but usually, you know, because of, you know, you you really had to pressure him to push him. 
Um, that is not the case out west, you know. Um, so, so when a dog goes on point, you kind of got to look at the situation and know what's going on. If you're hunting mm-hmm. blues and a dog goes on point, you need to be looking about 75 yards out in front of that dog because there's a pretty good chance that you're going to see them on the ground running and that they're going to, you know, if they decide to flush, it's going to be 75 yards out. Well, you can't – some guys can make a 75-yard shot. I am not one of them. <laughs> And so, you know, so it's one of those things that a lot of guys, if you're a traditional Bob White hunter and you like a very traditional gentleman Bob – you know, who behaves in a certain way and allows you these sort of things. Blues can be very frustrating because um, because they don't play by the rules. Mm-hmm. You know, they make up the rules as they go and they cheat the entire time. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it's just a whole different game. And, mm-hmm. and a lot of bird dog guys are like, oh, they're going to ruin your dog. And I'm like, no, they're not. Mm-hmm. You know, now, will they, will they make your dog look like an idiot? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, will they make you look like an idiot? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. I have never had the opportunity. I have not taken the opportunity uh, mm-hmm. to hunt, you know, chuckers. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always been told by chucker hunters, you know, that the first time you hunt them for fun and every time after that, mm-hmm. it's about revenge. And blues kind of fall into that category, although I'm not mad at them. I'm not, you know, it's just one of those things where I just want to be in their presence and I want my dogs to experience that. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing from a bird dog guy standpoint. I like to run my young dogs on blues, and I like for my dogs to work on blues. Because then when we hunt bobs, mm-hmm. it's like everything's in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I like them. So, as a guy, so now you've been chasing blues and bobs in West Texas for two decades now, yep, roughly. Easy. Give or take. Yep. Um, when you have a dog on point... Do you know if it's going to be a covey of bobs or a covey of blues? No. Um, well, it depends on where you are. There are certain parts of, of Texas where it would be unlikely to find a covey of blues, mm. but a lot of the ground. Um, so it depends. Okay, so I've got I've got some leases that are, you know, more east, and uh, they have mixed populations of bobs and blues. Um, they don't stay in the exact same habitat blues tend to like it a little more open than bobs Mm -hmm. do um so a lot of times you know you'd be like okay well this is more than likely going to be um but you know there's not a guarantee of it and Mm -hmm. then uh then there's certain spots where i'm like okay if we find a covey of bobs in here it'd be unlikely just because Mm -hmm. it's a lot more open um and then i have leases where um where it's primarily blues but you may run into the random covey of bobs mm. um i had a dog once in one of these one of these spots i had a dog um that was locked up we were south of midland i'm gonna say and uh, i had a dog locked up just bowed up everything looks perfect and there's this tree um i don't know if it's mesquite it's probably mesquite you know and the dog's almost pointed directly at the mesquite and i'm i'm with a buddy of mine and we you know we we both get on you know on the left buddy's on the right we go around the side of the dog and we keep going because it's blues so you need to get on out there Mm-hmm. And I get about 25 yards past that tree, and I hear the cubby flush behind me. <laughs> and, of course, they were on the other side of the tree, so I didn't really have a shot. But it was a cubby of bobs. And, uh-huh. you know, and had I walked where I was supposed to, mm-hmm. you know, I'd have stepped right in the middle of them. But mm-hmm. I, I walked, you know, like I'm hunting a cubby of blues, so I got, you know, um, you know. So it's one of those things where it, it's just different. 
Um, mm-hmm. And I, I understand why people get frustrated with them. I, I, I see it. I understand it. I just don't, you know. I don't know what it is. I just, I just absolutely, <laughs> you know. And so, and well, here to give you, here to give you yeah. something, so that folks, you know, for a long time, um, my exact shotgun setup for blues was the exact same shutup, shotgun setup that I used for pheasants. You know? Really? Yeah, I was shooting like modified, improved modified, uh, copper plated sixes. Mm. That's what I'm shooting on blues, and I was shooting the exact same thing on pheasants. I didn't have to change anything when I went pheasant hunting. It was just my exact, you know, my setup was the exact same. So that kind of gives you an idea of what they're like. They're hard to kill. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they don't, and they don't like to die. I mean, they are, you know, uh, if you, and that, that's the other thing too, mm-hmm. you know, you kill a blue, you knock a blue down. That don't mean much. You know, you got to have dogs that know how to go after them. And not only that, you've got to go after them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people that don't get to hunt with me anymore because I'm very specific with them when we're hunting blues. And it is that you don't really want to shoot doubles. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to lose birds, you know, if you try to shoot doubles. Um, and you're better off, if you kill a bird, you go to him. Yeah. You know, because your dogs are going to need some help to find him. You know, unless he is stone cold dead. Which I, I remember happen. that yeah. very distinctly yeah. mm-hmm. when we left the truck with you and Ted that first day. You're like, okay, here's our rule. You're not yeah. shooting doubles. Yeah. Uh, on coveys, you're shooting one bird at a time. And you're getting over there and finding those birds. Yeah. Like, I appreciated that ethic. Oh, I was a little confused out of the gates. I'm like, you know, this this shouldn't be well, that it, hard. But it all but looks the same too. It, you know, right. I mean, every mesquite and cactus. You're like, so there by that cactus. Well, which one? There's about ten thousand right. of them. Well, and it yeah. didn't take it didn't no. take much for me to realize. Oh, this is a really wise yeah. advice. And that, yeah. you know, again, it, you know. We all think our dogs are the best, but I do feel like oh. I had a little bit of advantage with my dogs being able to chase crippled roosters. Oh, sure, yeah. No. Roosters don't die easily either, no. right? So, no. so with the blue, like blue gets up, you know, mm. like you say, you know, it doesn't mean anything that it's out of yeah. the air, you know, yeah. and they're running, and I my dogs, you know, steady to wing, but mm. the minute that birds in the air they're running to try to retrieve right sure and i think that benefited me the one thing that i remember about blues that was difficult and different like when you're hunting pheasants they bury themselves in the grass or just run track stars blues they they're like diving into holes oh yeah burying themselves in the thickest mesquite cactus like you know trying to pull them out can be a real bear like snake holes and i don't even know what kind of holes they just dove into and, and you do not i have a story about that guy that, that used to work for me was out there uh and uh he'd knocked a bird down and it'd gone into this little bitty cactus you know little, mm. little cactus patch and there was nothing else around it you know so mm. he knew the bird was in there there's no question about it and so we were able to kind of push the cactus over and he saw the hole and there's me and a buddy of mine and and this other buddy of mine that, that uh, he was our buyer for a long time named jonathan and uh, Jonathan goes, oh, I see him. And there's a hole, you know, there's a hole. And he sticks his hand in there and grabs the bird by the neck and pulls the bird out. As soon as he pulls the bird out, a rat, you know, from nose to tail, probably a foot and a half long, just comes scooting out right after that bird. And I mean, and I mean, you were talking about jumping back. And we were lucky, <laughs> that, you, we were lucky that it was a rat, you know, yeah. a rattlesnake. Yeah. So you don't stick your hand down in holes in Texas, man. 
<laughs> so, uh, so, so many questions. How often do you see snakes? Um, okay, so I've been hunting in Texas since 92. So, you know, we're, we're approaching, you know, we're in the 30-year category mm-hmm. now. Um, I have seen one, two, three, three. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now. So reasonable. I'm real, I'm real, I, I'm very comfortable that I've experienced more than that. Mm-hmm. And I've been close to more than that. But um, I'm real particular about when I go. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel this way about everything, you know, because I've seen as many snakes in Montana as I've seen in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where you got to look at the, you know, you got to look at the weather and you got to look at where you hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't want to, you know, once the temperature gets to a certain thing, I, it starts getting above 65 and I start, you know, I start yeah. going, hey, it'd be a good afternoon to get some emails answered. Yeah. You know, uh, huh. um, because, uh, you know, they're going to come out. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, and then, and then there's certain areas, you know, like the rockier areas, especially when it, you know, if it's, if it's 30 degrees, you know, I'll go anywhere, you know, but yeah. if it's 65 degrees, we're not hunting stuff that's got rocks close to it because they're going to come out and sun. So a lot of that is, you know, intentional. Um, and I don't hunt South Texas. It's rare that I hunt South Texas. Um, they see snakes almost daily in most of mm-hmm. South Texas, some places. Some places. Yeah. So, but you know, it's it's like you know, it's in the eighties. They're they're bird hunting down there in the eighties. I'm not doing that. You mentioned shooting sixes with modified and you know tighter mm-hmm. chokes. Oh yeah. When you're hunting blues, it made me curious what you're shooting for bobs and what you're shooting when it could be. Yeah. Either. So when it's either, um, I'm I'm right now most of the time I'm improved cylinder mod. That that's you know I think that's a pretty classic. You know, mm-hmm. quail setup, and I'm not a bunch. I'm not a great gun guy. I've, I've got, mm. you know, I'm, I, I shoot side by sides, and I, I love nice guns, but I'm not. I'm just not that guy. Um, and I'm shooting generally um, seven and a halfs. Um, okay. Yep. But unless it's unless it's primary, but but I also um, I get real specific on my on you know on blues when I've uh, when I've got. Um, when I know that there are blues in the area, I'm real selective on the shots that I take. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, um, it's like anything else. You know, you, you got to learn. You got to know your gun, and you got to know your patterns, and you got to know what what you're capable of. And yeah. uh, and yeah. so um, so I try to be real selective on my shots because I, I don't like leaving them on the ground. I would much rather watch one fly off than cripple one. So yeah, right on. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, one of those things, too, so, where I, I've outgrown the, you know, I don't, you know, I don't care how many birds I kill. That's not a, you know, we're, we're not a, I, I could have a great day and not fire a shot, you know, and I'm not a meat hunter by, you know, any stretch of the imagination. So, so I, I know you're relatively recently returned from Texas, so I want to yes. ask about what you found. But so you say you're not, you know, you're not about... The, um, you know, killing birds or shotguns. What you are about is bird well, dogs. Well, I do. Yes. Like, now, yeah, I, bird I like dogs sh- are the center I, of the bullseye for Steve. I have, to, I have to be careful about it. I like shooting birds as much as the next guy. It's just that, you know, um, we go through these times where there's not a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do I do a couple of things. I have, I have um, you met Dr. R- well, we were talking earlier um, before we started. We were talking about the, the, uh, the uh, Rolling Plains, the research. Yeah. Range. Yep. And you got to meet Dr. Rollins. Yep. So uh, I, I've, I've been on lease. Dr. Rollins, is, is, he's, he's semi-retired now, but uh, he was an original director of the Rolling Plains Research Ranch, which is a 
research foundation in West Texas that, that is all they do is quail research. And uh, but I've I've had a chance to hunt with him and he and a and a real good buddy of him a buddy of his named Steve. Um, uh, they're my you know they they taught me a game that we play out there and it's called Rooster Snooker, and uh, you are only allowed to shoot two hens a day. And mm. so, yes, on, so on bobs, you know, you can tell the difference between a male and a female bob in, in the air mm-hmm. if, you, if you try. Yep. And so, yep. so they conned me into this, and, I, and I, I've, I've harassed Dr. Rollins for years about it because he's the first person that ever made me feel bad about shooting quail. Because mm. for a long time, you know, we thought that, that, that female hens would only, they would mate and they would, that, that was it. You know, they'd find them a male. Well, that's not the case, you know. Um, and so, kind of like pheasants, you know, if you have the opportunity not to shoot a hen, you should not. And so, they, they conned me into this, and now it's, I'm obsessed with it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and so it's one of those things. But here's the, here's the real beauty of it. If you're, if you're doing it, mm-hmm. then you're actually paying attention to the, the bird's you know, mm-hmm. face, because that's the mm-hmm. only way to tell is the, the yeah, white, the white face. versus the yeah. cream color. So, it makes, your, it makes you a better shot. Mm-hmm. You know, because you're actually looking where you should be looking, and you know you're very concentrated on the bird. But it also makes you stop sometimes, where you're just like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But their rule <laughs> is, their rule is, is if you kill two hens, you're done. Uh, you know, the first two birds you kill of the day are hens, you're done. Yeah, you, know, you don't yeah. get any more. So, uh, so it's just it's just different. You know, you kind of have to, um, you have to, you have to keep some things in mind. Yeah, it, well, it's. Again, apologize for the baseball analogy no. to the listeners, but the, the you know my background in baseball, I, I always yeah. think about that the Ted Williams, you know, being able to read the laces, yep. you know, to be yep. able to, oh, you know, because of the rotation, it's a curveball, yep. or in fact, and he's looking at the laces, and you miss small, right? No. You, you aim small, aim small miss, small, miss small, right? Yeah. It's same That's thing right. with um, yep. with Bob White's or or Mern's quail where. You can identify if you're really, if you are locked in, yep. you can see the white versus the cream. Yep. And, and like you say, you know, you're, you're not going to miss that bird very yep. rarely if yes. you can identify, oh, that's the male, I'm going to shoot yep. that male. And so it is one of those things that we, now I joke with them when I shoot hens, I'm like, well, hens taste better. So, mm. you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it is one of those things. And I didn't think you could do it. You know, mm-hmm. I had heard of guys that could do it, but I was like, I can't do that. But the more I do it, you know, it becomes easier. And so, yeah. uh, um, so it is one of those things where, you know, you have to think about, and, and this comes back to, you know, the, the way, the way habitat works in Texas and, and so rainfall based that you have to be very careful, you know, thinking about your population and, and the health of your population going into the spring. Mm. Um, and you know, it is a, um, you know, if you, if you look at the numbers on quail hunting is a very small percentage of, you know, of mortality, mortality, you know, with birds, Mm -hmm. it it really is, but it's still part of it. And Mm -hmm. so you have to keep that in mind. And there's such a short lived bird, um, as far as you know, life average lifespan is less than a year, you know, so you've got to, you know, you have to think about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so. Because, you know, especially as the year progresses, you know, you're shooting, you know, the birds that are going to be there to reproduce. Now, quail are a, a species that can flourish in the right conditions. So, you know, your numbers can get down, you know, really low 
and bounce back. And that's been proven time and time again. Um, but got to be careful about it. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's been a couple of years, you know, since then. So we went from, you know, the highest numbers that I've ever seen to, all right, the lease that you and I hunted on, mm-hmm. we haven't set foot on that in four years. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it is shut down. Hmm. Um, now, I, I, don't, I haven't been on it this year. I've hunted um, east of it and I've hunted west of it. And, um, but I don't know how it is. And rainfall has been spotty this year. And so, and I haven't talked to anybody. So, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, um, you know, it was, you know, I, I, most birds I've ever moved to, you know, to, to within, you know, two years, three years, nothing. Wow. And that, and that can happen. So, um, so, so it's a, it's I, a balancing act. I want to, I want to get to what you found this year. I want to talk okay. about bird sure. dogs. I want to talk about gun dog supply too. Okay. Um, I want to, first off, I want to give a shout out to Onyx, um, sponsor of on the wing podcast um and a national sponsor of pheasants forever and quail forever private and public land boundaries are just the beginning of what onyx can do for you as a bird hunting tool it will make you a safer and more successful hunter give it a try risk-free seven-day trial at onyxhunt.com if you like what you test use the code pheasants or quail and you get 20 percent off your membership at onyxhunt.com and onyx bakes a donation back to pheasants forever and quail forever's wildlife habitat mission with every code that's used helping us create better habitat more public access and consequently more wild birds for all of us to chase all right so i'm sure people are wondering how the season's been in texas but I'm going to ask you about bird dogs first. <laughs> okay. Well, so, let me, let me, before you get too far away from it, I love Onyx, by the way. They, yeah, they, right. They're, they make an awesome product. If you if you aren't using it, it is, mm, it's neat stuff. It, I'm, a, it, I'm, I'm assuming even on, on your lease, which you know mm-hmm. real well, you use Onyx just yeah. to orient yourself back to so, the truck even, right? I use it, I use it for, for several things. Um, uh, not as much, not as much as, as that. Um, for me, it's more about identifying where my bird populations are and when mm. I'm finding them. Um, and then I try to keep up with it by year. So I have folders. And so, you know, this year I have, you know, all my, you know, I, I'll get real specific. Like I have a folder that is all of my sharp tails and prairie chicken finds. And so uh-huh. I can turn that on and turn that off if I want to see it. Um, and then I keep up with, I'm actually, I've had a conversation with them because my biggest complaint right now, and they're getting better because we now actually have a quail icon. Um, for a yeah. while, we just had an upland bird icon. Yeah. I was like, yeah. okay, I take I take offense that you have <laughs> 10 different deer, you know, uh, yeah. but you only have, you know, you have an upland bird. Mm-hmm. And so, um, cause I get, I get real specific, um, mm. you know, cause I want to say like, and I still to this day, I have to on like some stuff. Like, you know, I'll have to change, I'll, I'll mark something as an upland bird and then I'll have to select the color so that I know what it was, you mm-hmm. know, so, uh, so, but yeah, I use it to, I use it to keep up with that and then to communicate with landowners. I think that's something that, that a lot of folks, you know, land access is a huge deal everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and landowners, you know, landowners appreciate, um, if there's a problem, knowing about it. And I use Onyx for that because a couple of the landowners that I use, you know, I got I got access to some ground because somebody's cows were out, 
and mm-hmm. I made a phone call, you know, and I was able to I was able to send him a mark and go there right here, you know, because mm. that's that you know those are you know at that time they were probably a thousand dollars piece, you know, so. Um, but you know, I have another one. Hey, if there's a problem with a fence, I can mark it and I can send it to to him and go. Hey, it's right here, you know, and that yeah. way he knows exactly where he is. So uh, so it does a lot. They're they're a neat company. Um, yeah, that's a really good kernel of advice. Yeah. You never know. Yeah. Do you know being a good Samaritan? What yeah. that is gonna you know pay it forward, right? Well, you know, it's hard to own enough. You know, upland. You know, it's hard to own enough land to to quail hunt. You know, not many mm-hmm. people do. I I don't, and, mm-hmm. and probably never will. So having access to other people's ground is you know is a big deal. So you know, being able to help folks, it's just another way that you can you know secure access, and you know, it's the right thing to do. You you may never own enough land, but I'm guessing your family wonders if you already own enough bird dogs because oh <laughs> because I remember meeting for you for the first time and you pulled up with a trailer. Yeah. That was the length of a school bus. Yeah, my dog's laughing now. I was about to say, exactly. They're like, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Awesome. That's a, no, please, you can apologize to me. <laughs> yeah, Esky, uh, Esky yes. responded to that. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so... It's important to, to, the first step is identifying that you have a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I, <laughs> I, I have a problem. Yeah. Um, I have been very fortunate. I have been able to have, um, I've been able to have a lot of dogs. Um, <laughs> sometimes too many. I think mm. you probably saw me close to rock bottom. Uh, oh, really? There was a point in there where I was running about, well, no, by this I mean that, that my problem oh, had reached. Oh, gotcha, yes. gotcha, not, yeah. not, not that I was at a low number of dogs. I was like, holy is cow, that, No, no, that my problem, my problem had reached a point where I was about to hit rock bottom. Okay. Um, at one point, my, my current truck, which I, which I set up in 17, uh, has 14 slots for dogs. Wow. And that is too many bird dogs. Mm. For me. Mm-hmm. Let's be real specific there. I'm mm-hmm. not saying that it's too many bird dogs for some people. It's just too many for me. Mm-hmm. Um, my current string is eight, okay. uh, but but I'm I'm trying to decide where that number fits in. Um, okay. So I I uh, for a long time after my when I grew up I hunted with my dad and it was rare that I hunted with anybody else. And from the mm-hmm. time that I was 12 until I was 35, you know, I hunted with my dad or I hunted by myself. And, um, and one of the things about Texas, and, and this is true of a lot of Western, you know, setups and, and my experience, is that it's tough country and it's hard to only hunt it with a couple of dogs. Yeah. And I yeah. see folks that are trying to do it and they have dogs either that aren't in shape or they're older and they've got two dogs and, you know, you're just, you know, um, if your dogs aren't ready for that or if they're not in the right condition or they're, you know. You also and, are driving from Mississippi oh, to yeah. West Texas, and you're there yeah. for a week at a oh, crack. Yeah, exactly. And two well, dogs are, yeah. are going to have it's the tough. endurance. Yeah, it is, it is tough to do that. So I've always liked to have a good rotation you know, mm-hmm. of dogs. The problem that I've run into and you know, the problem that I ran into is as I started hunting with more folks, well, you know, you, this guy's got two dogs, and this guy's mm-hmm. got four dogs, and, you know, and they want to run their dogs, which is great. You know, and I look up, and I've got a dog that's been sitting in the truck for two days. It hasn't had an opportunity, and you're just like, you know, that's that's not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other side of it is that I, I, I ran into a point there where I had so many young dogs, 
that I, you know, uh, wasn't able to get them the kind of experience that they needed. So there is a line in there for me somewhere. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly where it is. Um, so my, we'll see. my recollection is that you had one lab, you yes. had one short hair. Yes. Ooh, yeah. And I want to say 11 pointers, yes. English pointers for folks yes. that reference it. Yes. Um, How did you get to that mix and is that still the mix today? So I am primarily an English pointer guy. Mm -hmm. um, I did not, well, okay, so when I was a kid, my dad had pointers and setters, but didn't have many. Um, and I don't remember, I primarily remember one setter. And when I first, first started hunting, we had a setter. Um, and then he, so I've always felt there's two kinds of dog guys, um, or at least you can, you can identify them as this. They're the dog guys that want to have the dog that everybody else has. Mm. You know, the typical, this is, you know, this is the dog. Mm -hmm. And then there's guys that want to have something that nobody else has. Mm -hmm. And we run into that and you see, and there's, you know, probably, I don't know how many, but, you know, probably 20 or 25 different, you know, pointing breeds you yeah. know, that you can have. And some of them you're, you've never heard of, or you're mm -hmm. like, you know, hey, that's the first one of those I've ever seen. Um, my dad kind of fell into that category in the late seventies, early eighties in that, um, things were changing and you needed closer working dogs um, and we had a huge deer population and you know, it was just changing and he wanted something different so we got a Brittany. So my first bird dog was a Brittany came from Rick Smith um, and so that you know for the rest of his life all he had was Brittany's. Um, I think he had one setter in there that he got as a as a project dog. Um, he, he was a guy that, that liked to take other people's dogs that they'd screwed up and fix. Mm. That was his. And I've tried that, and I'm not as good at it. <laughs> and so I don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. I, I, if a dog's screwed up, it's because I screwed it up. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, um, so, but he had Britney's mm. you know, forever. When we first started hunting in Texas, we had Britney's. Mm. And um, uh, I don't know where it, when it started for me. It probably started for me heavily. We field trialed a little bit, um, a lot of MBHA stuff, and uh, and I was always competing. Unless I was in a Brittany trial, I was competing against pointers and setters, and I got beat a lot. Not because my dogs weren't good, just because you know it was just tricky. Um, but that was the typical. And uh, when I started hunting Texas, I just I just really wanted a pointer. So I didn't get my first pointer until I was thirty, probably. Hmm. Um, and uh and she was a phenomenal dog um but it just sort of you know from there on and it's one of those things too where you know where certain folks are this way but you're just a you know i, I you know a real, one real good friend of mine that i hunt with he's a setter guy you know and it's not that he doesn't appreciate him he's just a setter guy you know um and uh, and every once in a while we'll harass him about you know you need to get you a pointer you know <laughs> but you know then his setter will beat my pointers, and, you know, and he's like, well, maybe you. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things where I, I've always kind of told folks that they should get what they enjoy looking at mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. being around because you don't hunt, you know, you're with that dog, you know, all year. You know, hunting is a short period of time, you know, for that. So you need to get a dog that you like their personality or you like the way they look or you like, you know, spending time with them. And I don't know what it is. There's just something about pointers. That, you know. So you like the way they look. What What about yeah. what What do you What appeals to you about the way they hunt quail in that big country? So 
Um, you know, I like a bigger running dog. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to hunt in prairie type situations. I like, you know, I like big open areas, and so I need a dog that'll stretch. You yep. know, um, at, you know, I used to think prior to the the use of GPS, I used to mm -hmm. think my dogs ran bigger than they did. Um, they don't run any bigger than they did. I just now know an accurate number, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I like a dog that's working between 200 and 400 yards, yeah. you know, yeah. as a general rule, hmm. um, anything past 400 yards, they better be on point, you know, or they better be working their way back toward me. Mm -hmm. Um, and that can, you know, and that can vary depending on where you're hunting. Um, but that's just kind of what I like. I like, you know, um, I like shooting dogs as far as the. If, if from a field, if you're a field trawler, you know, shooting dog is just the, the size race that they run. That's what I tend to like, um, because you got to cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Um, you know, and I know a lot of guys. My dad didn't like dogs that ran that big. He wanted them, you know, closer in. Um, some of it helps that we have the ability to track these bigger running dogs. You know, um, having GPS, we used telemetry prior to GPS, and it was a much more challenging, you know, sort of thing than using GPS. But. Uh, did they, you know, did so, they ever use bells in quail? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I grew up hunting with bells. Yeah. And I've tried to go back to it. Um, uh, and it's amazing. Uh, I have a really nice dog of mine that I decided, I was like, I need to put a bell on this dog. And uh, I stuck a bell and shut him down completely. Really? What to do. Yeah, yeah we've never yeah. been around one. And it was just one of these things, you know. But, yeah, yeah, we used bells when I was growing up. That's what we used. I didn't start using beepers until I started hunting out in Texas. We never used beepers back home. Okay. Um, and bells, there's something about if you've hunted with bells. Uh, have you ever done that? Is that? Oh yeah, gruff grouse hunting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And most of the bells that we sell nowadays are for rough grouse hunters. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's one of those things too, where you know there's a skill to it. You know, you got to listen. You got to know where. Where's the last time? You know, where was that yep. bell the last time yep. you heard it? Yeah. <laughs> so I grew up. A lot of my quail hunting was in country that's a lot like rough grouse hunting. You know, it mm -hmm. was it was thick woods. Um, so we use bells, but you know, bells pretty much worthless when that dog goes on point. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's like you yeah. say, you got to remember yeah. the last time you yeah. heard that sound and yeah. then walk yeah. in the general direction. And if you have a dog that yeah. runs real big and you just lose, it, yeah. you're lost, or they oh, yeah. are, or both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get a kick out of people. I saw somebody the other day who was like, my dogs don't need GPS. And I'm like, I, you know, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know? I'm, just, I'm just not going back, man. You know? I don't care. You know, All right, so I'm, this is a perfect transition okay. to the t tools of the trade. Yes. Well, wait, I didn't, quite I didn't quite cover my dogs correctly. Yeah, yeah, let me, oh, let yeah, me go ahead. Real yeah. quick, real quick. I, I don't have a German short hair right now. Um, I don't remember which one I had when you were there. I, was, I don't I, remember. I, Did you have a dog named Duke? Uh, no, I have okay. a Duke I, right now, but I didn't have a Duke then. Um, okay. I know that Click was around then. Um, but going back, um, my first German short hair was one of the best dogs I've ever had in my life. Top five. Um, after he passed a couple of years later, I got another dog out of the exact same kennel. Worst bird dog I have ever had. <laughs> oh, so I got, I got, it was one of those things where I was like, okay, I'm gonna hold off for a while. I've got a buddy of mine that I hunt with in Mississippi that has a really nice German short hair. And, uh, and I've seen a few, I've got some buddies that have really good setters. I have a, um, I have a, I have a setter. Um, I won't go deep into it. He's technically a better, which I don't know if you if you saw Dr. Rollins. Uh, they, Dr. Rollins has a line of dogs that are called betters. They're a Brittany Setter cross, huh. 
and yeah, so, okay. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's an odd combination, but uh, Cowboy is, uh, and he's 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 big running dog. He's, huh. he's he's actually one of my best dogs right now. But we're having we we go back and forth and with a little trouble. He likes to make these eight hundred yard casts, and um, that that can be frustrating at times. Mm. Um, he's nice. He's a nice bird dog. Um, I don't have a lab right now. Um, I'm thinking about getting an English cocker. I really want huh. an English cocker. <laughs> they are, uh, but they I, are very yeah. popular, especially they in are. the southeast right now. Yes, yes. So I, I don't know. I don't duck hunt enough that I can justify having a lab. And I have a buddy that has a, that has a lab kennel, um, and so I never, you know, usually when I'm duck hunting, I'm with him. So, um, hmm. so, uh, <laughs> but you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm a, I'm a very open-minded dog guy. Yeah. Uh, you know, eh, I. Eh. And say again how many yeah. English pointers you have right now. Oh, goodness. Uh, my current string is eight. Eight, and that's then, right. And then I have seven puppies that I'm playing with. Oh, wow. So I have 15, which is <laughs> you know, too many. <laughs> so, once again, I still have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> so the, is that a litter that you bred yeah. yourself? Yeah. 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 And how many will you keep out of a litter? I hope on those, none. Okay. Um, huh. I don't. Well, I don't know. I don't know yet. I've got there's there's two in there that I really like. So we'll we'll see. We'll see. Still a buddy of mine. Unfortunately, I have a, a buddy of mine has a that that is a he oversees a, a very large shooting preserve operation. Okay. Needs dogs and and I so I'm I'm raising these for him. Gotcha. So we'll see because I keep saying I'm going to get my numbers down. Six is the number I'm going for now. Like I need six really good dogs. But it's tricky, man. You know because. You know, it's one of those things that their lifespans are so short yeah. that, you know, by the time you get them where you want them, you've got to start thinking about the next one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's a, you know, and I have that conversation, especially with guys that have two or three dogs where I'm like, you know, he's five. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to find a puppy. And, you know, I'm, I'm real big on finding puppies. You've got to be real specific about how you find a puppy because the majority of your work, if, if you're smart, you know, the biggest mistake I think that people make is that they, uh, you know, they don't, whoopsie. They, uh, they don't, um, they don't pick the puppies right, mm. you know? So you can't just go pick up a random puppy and, and feel like it's going to be okay. You know, I want, you know, I want to be real specific about the dogs that I buy. So it's tricky, especially if you have a limit of the number of dogs that you can have. Right. You know, and I'm fortunate. I, you know, I, I, where I live, I can have as many as I want. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I have a very understanding spouse. So, yeah. Yeah. you know where to buy kennels too. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And my budget's a little different than you know. I'm able. That's a business expense. Right. And so, uh, so you know, it, but it's it's a tricky thing. You know, it's a tricky thing to to time it all right so that you have you know you have an experienced dog and you're training a young dog. I mean, that's it's, yeah. It's, you it's you mentioned the right year at least for my philosophy, like. I try to do it every five years. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's a good know, number. Yeah, have a you know a ten year old that's a veteran who I know mm-hmm. is, you know, going to get the golden hour, and that yes. might be it. You know, or yes. the first taunt of the day and the last time. Yep. And then uh, that five year old that's in their prime, you yep. know, they're the ones that are going to work the hardest. And then you got a pup. Yeah. And then a knucklehead uh, that you can that's, yeah that, that's that, learning and, and learning yeah. the rope. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, and that's, you know, like I said, if, if you're on a three dog rotation, that's a good way to do it. Right. But everybody kind of has to figure out what works for them and how much time they have. And, yeah. you know, um, it's, it's, yeah. it's challenging. Uh, gun dog supply. 
Now how did how did Gundog Supply come to be? So my parents started Gundog Supply in 1972. Mm. Um, basically, a my, my father was a bird hunter from way back, um, and he was looking for. He and his brother owned a feed store, and he was looking for something to add to it, and bought some some bird dog stuff. And they were both they were both quail hunters, and you know back then quail hunting was pretty pretty common thing in, in this part of the world. And uh, he was looking, he, he bought some stuff, uh, mail order, um, back when it was actually mail order. You, know, mm. you filled out a piece of paper and you wrote a check and you mailed it. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, got some stuff in that, that wasn't very good. And he was like, huh, I can do better than this. So mm. started making dog collars and leashes. And next thing you know, they're, they're making all sorts of stuff. And um, this was in the you know, mid-70s, uh, late-70s. And uh, eventually, um, it turned more into a, um, uh, he had, they had a, a place in, in Ridgeland, which is north of Jackson, Mississippi, that was called the Dog Store. And it was basically uh, dog food, you know, primarily. Okay. Um, and we sold, you know, we sold training stuff and hunting stuff and, you know, all of that. I, this, was, this was in the early 80s, mid-80s. Um, and we did that up until about the mid-90s. And uh, we had a PetSmart move in uh, hmm. across the highway from us. Yeah, and you know we were able to compete up to a certain extent, but you know it was a pretty major you know presence. And at that time, we still were doing mail order, but not it was not our primary focus. Um, and so around that time, we started doing. Um, I say we. I was in college, and and my brother and I were doing some of our own stuff. Um, I, you know, I worked there when I was a teenager, and. Uh, um, but in the mid nineties, we started kind of pushing back toward into the mail order side of it, but, you know, making catalogs was expensive and, mm-hmm. um, it was still kind of early in the, you know, what people think of as, as mail order nowadays, you know, is nothing like it was. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up going to the post office with my mom and she would, you know, we called it mailbox money, you know, because mm-hmm. you would go to the post office and there would be orders and it would be, they, they wrote down on a piece of paper and there's a check and you fill the order. Not like it is today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Very different world, but so so they started doing a catalog again, and it was it was okay, but nothing great. But that was around the time that the internet was starting to become a thing, huh. and um, so we, my brother was getting into that, and uh, we put a catalog request thing online, and this is '96, um, and uh, we were getting so many catalog requests that my dad said either put it online where I can sell stuff online or cut it off hmm. it was like, because I cannot afford to send out this many catalogs to people that we really haven't figured out if they're actual customers. Um, he said, so either, either put it online or shut it off. So we put it online and um, within about six months, it was out of hand. Really? You know, it was one of those. Yeah. It was one of those things that, uh, that it got out of control really fast. And this is really early in the internet. We were very fortunate that uh, we just kind of got in, you know, at the right time. It was very early. There wasn't a lot of stuff, and um, there weren't a lot of stores available. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, if you think about it, you know, Amazon started in, like, 94, mm-hmm. you know, and like I said, we were 96, 97. Is wow, you we, did hit it, yeah. right? And now, yeah. like, any anything possible a bird dog mm. owner oh, yeah. would want is yeah. at gundogsupply.com. Uh, yeah, we, we, try to, we, we try to be pretty particular but we also like to have 
you know, we like to have a little bit of everything. There's certain yeah. things that I, you know, for certain reasons, I recommend that you go straight to the manufacturer. Okay. Um, huh. Primarily because of shipping stuff. You know, shipping gotcha. is, a, is a tricky thing, and it's worse nowadays than it's ever been um, as far as the cost of it. Mm. Um, but there's, there's a few things out there that, that people are like, why don't you sell so-and-so? And I'm like, mm. well, I really like it. Um, but, you know, by the time, you know, they ship it to me and I ship it to you, there's no money left for anything. Right, so, right. You know. Not um, to give away but, yeah. trade yeah. secrets, right? But oh, what, please. Yeah. What, what, is the, what are the top-selling products that so, yeah, people go to and look for? You, um, you know, our biggest stuff is, is, you know, is the GPS tracking e-collar. Okay. You know, our top, our top three manufacturers, you know, sell either GPS, you know, uh, tracking or e-collar stuff. You know, so so that's mm. that's you know that's the biggest dot, and a lot of that's got to do with the fact that the cheapest thing they sell is you know 150 bucks, and you know up to you know you can you know the rig that I carry is you know two thousand mm-hmm. dollars, you know, so it doesn't take doesn't take a lot of that to right. You know. But our fourth selling item, and I and I always, and when someone asks me what I do for a living, I sell dog collars. Mm-hmm. That's what I do for a living. When someone says, "What do you do for a living?" I sell dog collars because I actually. Our fourth thing is actual dog collars. And mm-hmm. you would be, it would blow most people's minds if they saw how many dog collars we sell. I mean, we sell, you know, we sell, we sell high quality dog collars. We've got, you know, inexpensive all the way up to crazy expensive. Yeah. And, uh, but, you know, we put the ID plates on them and that's a yep. gigantic deal. And it's one of those things that everybody, not only should everybody, everybody needs one, but everybody should have that. And so the number of those that we sell is absolutely insane. I mean, it's a, we've got, got uh, five your, people, you know, that's all they do. It's dog collar. Is that right? Because yeah. all my dogs it's about that number. Yep. have the um, the rubberized, I think it's a rubberized material with mm-hmm. the, the yeah. O-ring. Yeah, it's either, yeah, it's a Duralon or a, it depends on what you call it. Tough Flex mm-hmm. is a brand that we sell. We make one of our own called the Big Dog Collar. Yep. Um, and they have so, the personalized yeah. nameplate. And I've heard yes. people say... So this is an interesting question for you. I've heard people mm. say, and maybe it's mythology, that you shouldn't put your dog's name on a collar because if your dog gets lost, you don't want somebody to just steal your dog and be able to know the name. Have you ever heard this this yeah, line of thinking? I, as, a, as a general rule, I'm going to agree with the fact that um, this has changed a little bit, but mm. I, I have a certain philosophy on it in that I only want pertinent information on that tag that's going to get that dog back to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so whether or not the guy knows the dog's name or not, if somebody wanted to steal your dog, mm-hmm. that, you know, that would help them. Mm-hmm. My personal take on it, though, is, is that the guy that wants to steal your dog, he doesn't care what the dog's name is. Sure. If he's going to steal your dog, he's going to steal your dog. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, an enormous amount, and I don't know if it's as bad as it was. There was a period of time in there where dog fighting was a big deal, and a lot of dogs mm-hmm. were being stolen because they were yeah. being used as yeah. And so those guys don't care what your dog's name is. Yeah. Um, so, and I don't know how bad that is. Um, for me, it's more about you know that plate is there for you to get that dog back. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I want you know I want the owner's name and I want multiple phone numbers. Um, Nowadays, you know, with cell phones, you know, it's it's not as bad as it used to be because, like, you know, there was, you know, nowadays everybody's got their phone with them and they don't, you know, I don't even have a home line, mm. you know. So if my dog gets lost, you know, um, and I've had I've had uh, that 
cetera, I was talking about Cowboy. He, he is an escape artist, and uh, he has come <laughs> back to me. I have had him return to me three times in the last no year kidding. and a half. No kidding. Yeah. At home, yeah. He's a, he's, yeah. a, he's a bit of a, yes, he's, he's, he, likes to, he likes to break out of things. And, um, but he's come back home to me you know, three times strictly because of the collar that's on there. Um, you know, my take on it is that if somebody finds your dog and they call you and say, hey, I've got your dog, and go, oh, great, his name's Cowboy, his name's, you know, Drake, his name's, you know, Duke, you know, you can tell him. So they can yeah. go, oh, good, you know. But here's the other thing, too, and I don't know if people realize this or not, the number of dogs' names that I have changed over their lifespan, it's not hard to change a dog's name. <laughs> is that right? It's not. No, it's not, you know. It doesn't take a lot of time um, because they don't really, it's a, it's a sound, you know. Yeah, and right. One of, one of the best dogs my dad ever had. He loved this dog so much. And he, but he bought her as an older dog, and her name was Charm, which was horrible. Mm. Charm. <laughs> and uh, uh, so he changed it. You know, he changed it, I th- he changed it to Star, which is close. Mm-hmm. It, didn't ta- it didn't take long at all. I bought a dog once that had, his tail had gotten thwacked as a young dog, and they called him Stubby. Hmm. And he's a great dog, but they called him Stubby. And I was like, I can't do that. So I changed his name to Stud. You know, I changed his name from Stub to Stud. Well, yeah. That was pretty easy to do. But yeah, yeah, you know. So really the trick is is to have a good collar that's going to hold up, that has a, you know, we like brass ID plates that are mm-hmm. riveted to the collar. That's yep. the thing, you know. And it needs to have contact information, um, you know, I like to put requires daily medication and reward and those kind of things because, you know, it, it makes people go, hey, this is serious. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to put a city and state because I travel so much. I want folks to know, hey, that dog, not only is that dog lost, but he's lost from a long way from home. Yeah. Um, and we've got a bunch of stuff that you can go through and fill out, um, you know, and, and figure out what works for you. But the most important thing is to have, you know, I like, I've got my cell phone and my wife's cell phone and I've got the office number and, you know, that kind of thing. Because most people that find your dog, they're going to call yeah, I mean, that's yeah. The just, reward that's re- reward yeah. note is a good idea. Like, who wouldn't give a reward yeah. to get their dog back? Yeah, and that's probably exactly. just one little nugget yeah. that that gets people over the edge. You know, and I don't know how many times I have I have had dogs that have gotten picked up and everything. I've never had a person take a dime from me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've tried and I've never had. You know, so most most people want to do the right thing and they want to help you get your dog back. Yeah, so. But most, most folks don't, you know, either they don't have a high-quality collar or they don't have updated information or, you know, and dog collars are cheap, man. I sell a really nice dog collar with, you know, 10 bucks. Yeah. You yeah. know, including, you know, I mean, you know, you're not talking about a lot of money. So you need to look at it from time to time and make sure everything's updated on it. Right. You know, make sure it's in good shape. and Yeah, it's a big deal. Anything you need is really gundogsupply.com it's really you know i bought like you mentioned dog collars i get i get a color connected to my dogs and i get mm-hmm. new collars yeah. over and over mm-hmm. with the yep. name plates um the the other place that the only place i've been able to find like um stakeouts you yep. know the really heavy duty ones for mm-hmm. you know if you're gonna go a dog train every wednesday night and i sure. you know walk a group you know, horseback, but you want your dog safe on the stakeouts yeah. that they can spin around on the chain. You got those there. I mean, you get yeah. just tremendous amount of tools yeah. for, for you know, the dog trainer and the bird hunter. So, oh yeah, really cool stuff. Up uh, as I Thank transition you. towards the end here, I, I've left yeah one big topic waiting people waiting to hear what the oh, season's no. been like. And I, 
I'm definitely <sighs> curious about what West Texas is like because I know, you know, season's been open a little while. You didn't go early because of the heat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which I, you know, when you have eight dogs, you've been traveling. Yes. I know you've been traveling to hunt. So, what's your season been like? And lead us up to West so, Texas. So, you know, it's been an odd. It's been an odd year um, for me. Uh, I generally try to start, you know, in August or September, as far as going somewhere up north. Hmm. Um, and uh, but I, I have not traveled a lot this year. I had a really nice trip to South Dakota. I had a really nice trip to Nebraska, and I'm I've had a good trip to Texas, and I'm leaving for Kansas. Thursday Mm. Um, but I didn't have much of a um, like I didn't make it to Montana this year which I've heard good you know everybody that I talked to did really well in Montana this year Um, but every time I tried to schedule something it was in the 70s Mm. and I just I'm real particular about hunting in the heat I I, it's dangerous Mm. Um, you know but you know we talked about snakes earlier but snakes are the least of your worries you know heat stroke is is you know a much bigger deal Mm. Um, and so, you know, if you've never seen a dog die from heat stroke, it is not something you want to repeat. I mean, you, you just don't want to, you know, um, it's not, it's not pretty. Um, so, uh, so I never made it, you know, I never made it to that. I'm real particular about where I go. I try not to go. So Texas has one of the longest quail seasons. Mm. It starts the last Saturday of October and goes to the last Sunday of February. Mm. So it's a, it's a long season. Um, but it, uh, Typically, where I hunt, November is usually not great, so I try to avoid. Um, the only time I'll go in November is if I have a new piece of ground that I'm trying to learn it, um, or if I just can't help myself and I'm, you know, <laughs> I just did it, which happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have been on on a pretty bad run, you know, since that high of the, you know, 2014 to 16, 17 was, you know, was a boom sort of cycle. And so it has been, you know, drought, um, you know, ever since. And so, uh, so we're still kind of in that situation where we're not getting not only the amount of rainfall that we need for quail, but the timing isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a, you know, that's a tricky combination. Um, so this year we had some decent rains in the spring, not, nothing great, but we had, you know, we had some. Uh, and then um, we have had some really good winter rains so far, which hmm. is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my experience, I'm going to say it's spotty. Okay. Um, we found birds in some spots. We didn't find birds in others. Okay. And, and a lot of times when I was looking at the areas, I'm still trying to figure out because I'm like, there's, what's the difference? Mm-hmm. You know, this area looks about the same as this area, and there's birds over here, but there's not birds over here. Um, so it's one of those things where it really just depends. Um, now we are in really good shape going into next year. And we've, we've talked about, you know, quail hunting and, and just upland hunting in general is one of those things where you better be optimistic mm-hmm. and you have to kind of think ahead a little mm-hmm. bit because it is one of those things of, you know, you've got to know what's going on. Um, and, um, one of the, one of the things you have to understand is a just as a reality is that um so texas is primarily a pay-to-play kind of game Mm. um it is Mm -hmm. a you don't find a lot there's not a lot of public ground in texas um it is primarily a privately owned state and um which is you know which is frustrating for a lot of people that want to experience it 
you know, but they aren't willing to, you know, because you either have to spend money with an outfitter, which can be insanely expensive, or you have to get on lease, which is hard to find and expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and then it's one of those things where I have a tendency to find leases, and if it's a good lease and it's a good landowner, I tend to stay on it over a long period of time, even though some of those years are going to be bad. Mm. Um, I have a lease that I paid on this year, and they gave us a discounted rate. Um, but there's a pretty good chance I'm not going to set foot on it this year wow. um, because I've already heard the I've already heard the reports, and they're not good. And so um, I'll probably I'll probably hit it once or twice just to check it out. We won't shoot any birds because those are the birds we need for next year. Mm. Um, so uh, now. The thing about drought is that it prepares the, the land for booms mm-hmm. because what happens is, is that everything gets cleared off and your grass gets really low and then you get the rainfall at the right time and then all the forbs come up and that's what the quail have to have to survive. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting combination of things. Um, so, you know, it's one of those things where um, I have enough birds on a couple of our properties that... I'll be able to go a couple of times. Mm. Um, you know, I'm going to be selective about what I harvest strictly because um, I'm thinking about, you know, next year I'm thinking about breeding stock. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to look. We did have a couple of really cool things happen. I was out at the research ranch um, in August and found while I was out there, they were doing some, uh, they were doing some survey stuff and we found two nests in August. Yeah. Yeah, and so Texas is one of those things where you can have late hatches, and right. you can have multiple hatches, which I guess can happen everywhere, and and you know all these things can happen everywhere. I, Texas is not unique in that situation, um, but we typically don't see nests that late, um, so that was kind of cool, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, both of those nests, my understanding is that both of those nests hatched, you know. So sometimes you'll get out there, and, and we call them peepers, you know, where you'll you'll run into birds in November that. You know, they can barely fly and they're, you know, you just can't, you can't hunt them because they're, you know, they're little baby quail. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so it is one of those things that we've had. So, so you have to have rains in the winter to have um, the right, certain forbs, you know, in the spring. If they don't get the rains in the winter, you're not going to have them. And broomweed is a big one of those. And we've had, we've had an opportunity that we could have a really good broomweed crop. And that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, when you have rain and then yes. you have the habitat respond. Uh, yes. You mentioned August as a breeding mm-hmm. nesting season, you know, and yeah. it starts all the way in April. So, you know, there's documents yeah. of, you know, oh, yeah. years where there's three different broods from the same yep. hen and well, you can you know, have those boom years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of times it has to do with birds re-nesting, mm-hmm. you know, where they have the opportunity where they, they, they either have multiple nests which doesn't happen as often um, but but it's more of an opportunity of well a bird tries to do a nest in April and it, it gets destroyed or something happens to it he has the opportunity she has the opportunity to nest again and you know so that that's a big deal mm-hmm. um, having the right combination of food having the right combination of grass um, you know it's tricky you've got to find ground that um, you know most most places and especially in the rolling plains um, you know, they're not primarily there as quail ground. Mm. Um, you know, it's most of it's cattle ground and most of it is oil ground. And so, um, you know, so you've got ranchers that are, you know, they're raising cows and yeah. that's much more valuable than, than quail. And they've got to manage their grass in a certain way. Mm. And they've got to manage their grass just, you know, to raise their cows properly, but also so the wildlife can, you know. So it's a tricky combination, yeah. you know, especially when you don't know what's going to happen. And you don't. 
You know, you have no idea, um, you know, when it's going to boom and when it's going to, you know. And we're in a similar situation. I think 2012, I've been to two Pheasant Fests. I've been to <laughs> 2012, and then I went last, last year. Last year, yeah. Uh, so 2022, so I went, so, so 10 years. And part of that is because, and I've, I've, I've complained to you about this before. Yeah, but, yeah. Know, it, it happens in February, which yep. is, I'm, I'm quail hunting in February. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. I'm going quail hunting. Yeah. Um, y'all had it in March last year. And then the other one was in 2012. And that was the first time since 1992 where I didn't go. That was the first year I didn't go to Texas. Mm. So in 2012, it was so bad. I didn't even set foot in the state. And in 2016, we had one of the best years we'd ever had before. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's this rotation out there that happens. And I look at it typically over about a 10 year cycle where in a 10 year period, you're going to have two great years. You're going to have two good years and mm -hmm. they typically book in those two great years. And then the rest of the years can be really, you know, the other six can be, you know, hit and miss. Gotcha. And so, yeah. So it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's just not, it, it can, it can be consistent at times, but you know, but it's tricky. And, well, uh, yeah, you'll be happy with me or a little, little happier with me that we are yes. moving to more March dates. I like that. I know Not this year's in February. Yeah, and this, this year's, year's in February. February. Yeah. Yep. It, yeah. That's that, okay. That's okay. We, what people probably may not realize is you have to book these events. Oh, like, like yeah. Super Bowls, you know. Oh, and like you know, far, and it's a casual, it's a casual sort of thing where you bring in, you know, thousands right, right, and thousands right. of people. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. I know that that changing it for me, you should just be able to do that on well, a whim. Well, I'm trying to do that so I could go quail hunting with you again yeah. in the future. But yes. we, do, we have February this year, but we have some yeah. March dates coming. Yes. Wow. Um, because we've heard not only you, our quail oh, audience, man. loud and clear. Yes. I mean, they want to be, yep. they want to be quail hunting in February, not going to yeah. a yeah. trade show somewhere. So yes, and not again, not hundred percent true, but we got yeah. a lot more March dates sure. on the horizon. Well, that's um, cool because it's so a it's an awesome event, and I you know I I really enjoy it. So, so I, but I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna miss out on. <laughs> I don't blame. Well, yeah. it, you've made a commitment having leases yeah. in Texas. I mean, you're yeah. in you're in Mississippi, traveling to leases in Texas. How many times a year? Are you making that trip? You know, it depends. Um, my kids, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an empty nester now, so mm. I think that's going to help some, especially on my next good boom year, um, because my wife gets tired of me, and she's she's usually about the time September rolls around, she's like, you need to leave. <laughs> and so uh, I get a little itchy. Uh, so it depends, yeah. you know. Um, six, seven trips a year wow. is on the high. That's, that's on the high end. You know, it's got to be pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um I'm trying to spread out a little bit more and, and hunt some other places. Okay. Um, you know, uh, I, I, this like this year I went back to South Dakota. It's the first time I've been to South Dakota in whew, maybe 10 years. Okay. You know, which, um, which, you know, and I love, I mean, a big part of it for me is the, I love the travel, you know, mm -hmm. part of it. Um, I mean, it's a, um, that, that, that's a, that's a fun part of it. And, uh, um, you know, you experience the same thing everywhere that you go, even if you know a piece of ground, you know, mm -hmm. it's going to change and you have to stay on top of that. You know, um, one of the things that I, you know, I like staying on leases because you kind of get a feel for where the birds are going to be, sure. you know, and they can be very consistent. And that's true everywhere. You know, I grew up hunting public ground um, primarily uh, and, 
you know, I always learned, you know, you had to, you had to stay on top of it. You always had to have new places and new things going on. And so it's kind of a constant, um, you know, just kind of keeping up with what's happening, Sure. you know, and stuff can change, um, you know, where like the drought that's going on right now, mm-hmm. you know, and that has been going on for the last several years has been a major impact on landowners. And, but it's also been a major impact on CRP and mm-hmm. on, you know, on, on ground that's being grazed. There's been a lot of haying going on and it's hard to blame the guys from the standpoint that, you know, they've got cows they got to feed. Yeah. yeah. And so there's a, there's a balancing act in there that, that um, is tricky. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you kind of got to stay on top of it. You know, and something that's great this year could be gone next year. Now it'll be back. You know, because, you know, or it should be. Is there a state in the, so you grew up in Mississippi, yeah. became a quail hunter in Mississippi. Is there a state in the southeastern United States that you, you know, still travel to, or or maybe it's Mississippi where you still um, do some quail hunting today? I, I have a few opportunities in the state of Mississippi where we, we still have, you know, there, there are probably more birds in the southeast than most people realize. Mm-hmm. Um, you just kind of have to think about it um i know more woodcock hunters in the state of mississippi um you know we we get a pretty decent you know migration Hmm. and uh i know a lot of guys that that's what their primary focus um you know louisiana and mississippi um and and i have a couple opportunities on some on some private ground that's still managed and uh you know i think last year my best day you know we found five woodcock Hmm. you know which is you know which is fun yeah um I have had the opportunity to hunt southern Georgia a few times, northern Florida. Um, they still have a pretty big quail mm-hmm. population down there. It is very um, restricted as far as access. You know, you got to know somebody who knows somebody mm-hmm. um, or, you know, be willing to spend some money. Yeah. And so, uh, but we still have a little bit. It's just, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest problems that we're suffering from in the southeast is that quail hunters, you know, I'm a young quail hunter and I'm 53. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a super young quail hunter, you know, um, you know, you don't meet a lot of, you know, quail hunters that are younger than me in the Southeast. Yeah. And so that's a concern. Um, I have a lot of hope for, um, the future, you know, I'm, a, um, I don't know the millennial and Gen Z hunters get bashed on a lot. I don't know if, uh, um, and I, I don't understand it. I'm a big fan of that particular age group. Um, I feel like they have a better understanding of what's going on. Mm. And, uh, you know, some of the stuff's silly, but, you know, some of the stuff that we did when I was at, you know, know, some of the stuff that I do right now is silly, I'll guarantee you. Uh, You know, so, uh, um, but I I like, I like the energy and the, Mm. you know, I I think, I think we have a, a larger group of young people right now that are interested and they understand you know, how it all goes together. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and we're seeing, um, I think the quail folks would be smarter if they focused on butterflies than anything else. Mm. You know, that, that type of thing. Cause mm-hmm. you know, um, that type of stuff benefit, you know, all the stuff that benefits pollinators benefits quail. Right. Right. And so, you know, so I'm a big believer in, in that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, that part of the movement. Um, yeah. and you know, and I don't, like I said, I don't understand the, you know, there's a lot of hate toward you know you know i guess i don't know it's just it's just weird you know people <laughs> they, make, they make fun of them you know but you know i like i like funny hats and weird beers and you know all that kind of stuff too so <laughs> you know well, that that sounded like a terrific closing thought but i'll pose it to yeah. you anyways um go ahead yeah what what's oh, it, it, first of all thank you very much for sharing oh. so much time your story I point people towards gundogsupply.com 
anything possible that you can't find anywhere else for your bird dog it's it's at that website you have a great business you have it, you know people may hear your voice and like oh i know that guy's face he's yeah. right there on the website you have terrific customer service Thank um you. but closing we have, a, we have a really we have a really good crew yeah do a really nice job yeah um, which is great for me because i like to I like you'd to like to go around, quail hunting be irresponsible yeah i'm i'm, I'm not here anywhere near as much as I should be. <laughs> but um t- put a bow on this for me what what yeah. is your you know what lasting thought do you want to leave people with about um you know quail bird dogs our conversation yeah uh, you know kind of tying back into it like i said i i i feel optimistic probably mm. more so than i think some people do and you know I, i'm not saying that it's going to look the same or it's going to be the same but i, I think that the my youngest son is 18 and his generation tends to look at things differently um they seem to they, they see a picture bigger than i think my generation mm. did um, and especially the generation before that um and they they you know i, I think that that you know that, that there's a lot of opportunity and i think that we will see um i think we'll see some changes as far as how things are done you know, over the next hundred years, um, that I think will benefit, you know, uh, I think we're going to see more natural, you know, sort of things and, mm-hmm. and some of some repairing of some of the damage that we have done. Yeah. Um, and I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a tree hugger by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I'm a realist from the standpoint that all these things go together Yeah. and, uh, you can't have one without the other. Um, and, you know, and we have done some things in, you know, in the movement, you know, trying to advance ourselves that have been detrimental to the natural world. Mm-hmm. And we got to be careful about that, you know. Um, and so I would like to see more because, you know, quail is a prime example. You know, quail is the, the canary in the coal mine type, you know, type species where, you know, so many things can benefit from good quail habitat where, you know, where it should be, you know, a primary focus. Yeah. Um, and just grasslands, you know, I don't think that people, um, I, I see a movement toward grasslands in the southeast, which which makes me feel just phenomenal. Yeah. Because we used to be, you know, they talk about, you know, they talk about there, there being this prairie region in the, you know, in between Mississippi and Alabama, and it just doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and so, you know, people are trying to bring that back. And you see it in the Midwest, too. It's just, not, you know, where yep. it's, where it's, and that's a big deal. Um, and, you know, we, we've made some mistakes and, you know, I, I, I feel, but I feel, I feel, you know, I feel very positive about where we're yeah. at. Um, it may be ugly getting there. And, <laughs> and we may, we may be upset about it, but, uh, but I do, I, I do really have a very positive feel for, yeah. for well, the future. Well, I, you know, I, I really enjoyed spending time in the field with you and i've really enjoyed this conversation you You're, too you well, know it's it, it is universal like if people are good bird dog owners and treat yeah. they tend to be just genuinely good human beings and that's true of the owner of gun dog supplies so well so you know for us enjoyable. it's always been it's always been a fun business because the majority of the time that i get to talk to somebody you know we're, we, we get to talk about their dogs right and so right. you know that's that's you know you don't you know most folks, you know, that have dogs are good folks. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much for uh, for sharing you. your story. Yeah. yeah. Well, I really appreciate what you do, and I, I enjoy your podcast, and and I'm a I'm a big fan of of, of what y'all you know 
what, what Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has done. I'm, cool. I'm just a huge fan. And so we, pre- we appreciate it. Well, folks, um, it's a great endorsement. If you're not yet a member, please go to quailforever.org or pheasantsforever.org. Get in the game, get in the conservation mission, and help us create habitat for bob whites, blues, ringnecks, um, sage grouse, lesser prairie chickens, greater prairie chickens. We're trying to create the the grassland habitat that uh, Steve was just talking about. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast. And I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks.